folks, welcome back to part two, Forward the Light Brigade. I am Dan Brady. Hi, I'm Johnny Smith, I am. And joining us today is poet, tarot card reader, all around love of my life, Carter, everybody. Hello. Hello, and you can hear Abby clippity-clapping with her nails on the floor. Lay down, you old bitch. Okay. I'm kidding everybody there. There she is. See her there. Yep. We're good. So, uh, Johnny, how are you? I'm doing all right, Dan. Um, slightly better than the first episode because uh, you, you got into my head. You uh, you've relaxed me a little bit. Still I'll good. tell, though. Good, good, good. Uh, Carter, how are you? I'm good. I'm just drinking some ginger ale. Chingy rail. What the fuck are you, 12? Yes. That's fair enough. I'm going to jail then. <laughs> this is a sandwich that I did not want to be a part of. <laughs> oh, man. Hey, Johnny, you keep saying there's too much of you to go around, so... Yeah, man. I'm trying not to... Uh, I'm trying not to go off the hinges... With the way I'm thinking, like last night I had to stop myself from posting some shit online about being a god and blah blah blah. So like right now I'm at Kanye level thoughts. Oh, damn! That is uh, you hanging out with Trevor Austin too much? <laughs> no, not at all. He uh, he actually didn't even uh, open my message. I tried to check on him. So fuck him. Oops, sorry. I got Amber alert. Somebody's uh. Oh yeah, missing. I got it uh, about an hour ago. Yeah. Every All time right. Dan and Carter spend time together, I get a fucking Amber alert. <laughs> uh, so part one, we talk about uh, all the things that led up to the Crimean War. Uh, basically, this wanting to control part of the Ottoman Empire. Everything that uh, led to war is basically a thirst for power from the Russians and everybody else stepped in and said, eh, this probably isn't a good idea to let this happen. So we, we hit on it briefly in part one. Uh, so we're going to talk about it at the top of part two. Um, disease. Disease was everywhere. Um, you were more likely to die from cholera in this war than you were from a bullet. It was a constant factor during the Crimean War. Yeah, typhus, typhoid, cholera, and dysentery ravaged the armies of all combatant nations. Uh, the prevention of infection was not well understood, and field hospitals were filthy. Uh, they would use the same uh, surgical tool to amputate on everybody's leg without washing it off. You know, um, gangrene was rampant. Uh, those who were wounded in battle often died later of infection. The loss of troops due to disease and infection became such a serious problem that almost for the first time, the armies of all nations began to consider how to improve sanitary conditions for their soldiers and how to more effectively treat the wounded. Because disease and bacteria... That stuff wasn't very well understood, especially at this time. I mean, it's bad during the Civil War, too. Um, so, you know, you 
if you got shot, even if it was a flesh wound, more often than not, it was going to lead to a lot more problems. You know, this is a lot of uh, uh, that we deal with throughout history. Like in, in 2020, I hadn't realized that you needed to tell people to wash their hands. But like even what I think is the most uh, shining example of this is when they decided to tell doctors to wash their hands and it cut the infant mortality rate in half. Oh, wow. I did not know that. So, yeah, um, I, like I, I don't understand how being clean is not like your first go to. And you got to remember, too, at this time, people were reading about this all in the newspapers. So people were horrified that there wasn't even a major battle yet. And a lot of their 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 boys, quote unquote, are dying. <laughs> so this gave rise to um, one of the people most associated with not only nursing, but with the Crimean War. Uh, we're going to talk about Florence Nightingale. Uh, Nightingale was a social reformer and writer who by 1850 had become interested in the prevention of disease and the treatment of the sick. In 1853, she was working as a superintendent at the Institute for the Care of Sick Gentlewomen on Harley Street in London. Now, gentlewoman refers to uh, people who come from money, essentially. Like Florence was a gentlewoman. I like that lady. term. She was a gentle lady. She came from wealth. She didn't have to be a nurse because at the day and time, nurses was associated with the poor. You were poor, you became a nurse. Now nurses now, are making twenty three dollars uh, an hour. Poor, yeah. Yeah, now now if you're poor, you just become a medical assistant. <laughs> Shout out to all my ladies. <laughs> but it's it's also because uh nursing was a very, very, uh, had a very high mortality rate because diseases, unsanitary conditions, you know, all this stuff factored into, you know, nurses died from this. So it was unheard of that she's like, oh, yeah, I got millions and millions of dollars, but I'm going to get my hands bloody. Good for her. And uh, just to shit on medical assistance even more, why the fuck would you go to school for 18 months, two years, whatever the fuck it is, just to make less than someone who works at Sheets? <laughs> Jesus Christ, Johnny. Uh, <laughs> I got nowhere to go from there. It's the truth, oh, man. You know how to take blood pressure. It's not that fucking fault. You, didn't, you, you went to school for two years to take blood pressure and, and weigh people. Like, you're not accomplishing anything with your life. I'm sorry to be aggressive, guys. Anybody can pay, even medical assistance. Go fuck yourselves. So, so um, when the first British troops were landed in the Danubian principalities in June of 1854, it wasn't long before newspapers were carrying lurid stories of the deaths uh, there due to disease. Again, this started a public outcry. Something needs to change. Um. So one of the people for given responsibility for ca carrying out these improvements were the, was the British Secretary for War, Sidney Herbert. Herbert was a lifelong friend of Florence Nightingale, and he authorized the creation of a new medical unit under her supervision, which was to be sent to treat the ill and wounded in Crimea. In October of 54, Nightingale, 30 
38 volunteer nurses, and 15 Catholic nuns, boy, that had to be a raging party, uh, set off from England. In early <laughs> November, Nightingale and her small team established a field off. Oh, Florence, we saw you staring longingly at one of the soldiers. You're going to hell! Uh, so Nightingale and her team of nuns established a field hospital at Selami uh, Barracks in Skutari, present-day Istanbul. This was located around 300 miles from the, brain, uh, from the main British military headquarters at Baklava in the Crimea. Conditions at the improvised field hospital were grim during the first winter. Uh, the first winter was fucking rough. Um, I was uh, <laughs> I read I read stories about like guys would go uh, to go to their buddy's foxhole to check in for a watch, and they would just push their buddy over because they froze to death. God, man, that's intense. God what? Almighty. Throughout history, uh, those who try to attack Russia in the winter fucking lose. And it's because of such harsh conditions. Like, even nowadays, it would be rough, even with modern technology. Just because it's an ice field uh, designed by Satan. Yeah, man. It's, it's pretty shitty terrain over there. Yeah, so... I apologize, but my appetite keeps coming back and it keeps going. So I'm just going to eat when it's here. Um, so conditions at the improvised field hospital were grim. Again, the facility was overcrowded. Ventilation was poor and the sewage system was inefficient and blocked. Uh, man, imagine having so much shit that it blocked your sewage system. Yeah. Um, you know that's not that's not that big of a deal. I've done that multiple times of my own accord. Well, you're a fucking beast, Johnny. You're not <laughs> French. Um, more and, than four- uh, God Russell, who passed used to get mad at me when I would take a shit in her upstairs bathroom because that was her bathroom, and I would almost always fucking clog it. <laughs> this was Bert. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Oh, also, uh, take the time <laughs> of bringing everything out again. Teesprings.com backslash what in the history. Buy a shirt today. You will benefit the Smith family uh, after suffering such a tremendous loss. I noticed Thank none you. of you have bought a fucking shirt in January, and I am judging you. <laughs> I ain't keeping any of the fucking money, okay? It is going to my best friend and his family in their time of need. So buy a fucking shirt, buy a fucking face mask, and help out a good human being. Fuck you. Hey, <laughs> I'm just going to go off. Yeah, you know, there's been a tremendous outpouring of support. Thank you to everybody. And uh, buy a shirt at the Teespring store just to rock the merch and look dope doing it. Uh, don't even worry about, you know what I mean, me or my family. Just... Just buy the merch, spread the word, uh, put what in the history out there, guys. I can't even get my own partner to buy a fucking t-shirt. Why could why could I expect to get strangers to buy a t-shirt? Shut up. I got new designs on Inquisitive Minds months ago and have yet to buy shirts. And I keep saying I got to order shirts for my whole group. And I go to order shirts and I get depressed and go to sleep. <laughs> so if you're having if you're having sleep 
order uh, sleep depression from shirt ordering out there. My heart is with you. Uh, if you're not, get off your lazy asses and, and click a button or something. I don't know. Carter, what's your thoughts on this? Be, be part of this. Be active. What do you got? What's, what's on your mind over there? Well, I plan on ordering one history merch when I get more money to. I want to get a mask um, to wrap it. But, yeah, and hopefully it goes to Johnny so, you know, it helps us and everything. But, yep. yeah. Here's how. Here's how indulged I am. Uh, I, I'm I'm so egotistical that when Dan said his partner, I forgot he was talking about his life partner, Carter. Carter, and I thought he was Carter. talking about me as partner on the. And uh, and then once I realized, I was like, oh, he's talking about Carter. I was like, wow, 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 wow. It's okay, Johnny. I'll give you a hug when I see you. I was like last week. I get a hug, motherfuckers. It was like last week when we recorded the intro to Lucky Luciano. I hated what I said, and Johnny looks at me and goes, "How was that?" Like that was trash. He's like, "Oh, no, no, no! My part was trash. Your part was good, Johnny." <laughs> yeah, I just put me on my ass. Put me right. Put me back in my britches where so, I needed to be. I was getting too big. Being for on it. your ass, um, the the field hospital uh, saw more than four thousand patients from the British, French, and Ottoman armies who were sent sent there died. The vast majority killed not by their wounds, but again by typhus and cholera. Nightingale wrote a report, which resulted in a sanitary commission being sent down from Britain. Now, I'm going to use this term affectionately. Nightingale is a fucking Karen, and she made shit happen. <laughs> Better so, than being a keyboard Karen. <laughs> so ventilation at the hospital at Scutari was improved. The sanitation system was brought back to full operation. Nightingale instituted hand-washing procedures for all staff working on the wards. Before Nightingale, I can't let that people. sit. I can't. I can't let that sit, Dan. Yeah. Um, Karens are named that way because they're overprivileged, overentitled cunts. She was not a Karen. She was a woman who was a strong, uh, intelligent person who just knew how to get things accomplished. We cannot run her through the fucking mud of calling her a Karen or a keyboard Karen, which I heard are some real rough people. Johnny, I am not going to have you undermine me on my fucking podcast. We can't drag this woman through the mud and be like she would call. I'm not dragging her through the mud. I'm just saying that since she she complained to the manager of Britain and people got sent. If if you said that about a dude, he would be a dude who got stuff done. So she was just a strong woman who accomplished things. So before Nightingale, not a Karen. She was a Florence Nightingale. So before <laughs> Florence <laughs> arrived, uh, the average death rate amongst those arriving at the hospital was 40%. With the improvements in place, it dropped to only 2%. You know, that's like when I started using Lana, uh, the death rate around very high. And now that I am a regular smoker, it's greatly decreased around me. So... Uh, because <laughs> because of uh, Florence's presence, it caught the eye of the the British public 
and newspapers. Uh, because, again, she was a very wealthy woman. Uh, and the fact that she became a nurse was seen as scandalous. Um, it was not something that a woman from a well-to-do family would usually consider. Nightingale's father was horrified and disgusted when he learned that his daughter planned to involve herself in nur nursing. How dare you help people? You're nothing other than a streetwalker. So by the way, okay. by the way, Skywalker, quit fucking ducking me. Uh, the roast on the 29th, I'm not going to be able to make because I can't go. So quit fucking ducking me to throw that out there until we roast. <laughs> Fuck Skywalker. Uh, still, there is no doubt that um, <laughs> Nightingale was known to like <laughs> stories originated in newspapers of her just walking bed to bed, comforting these men. She became known as like an angel of mercy. So she got a cult following. But that, that takes nothing away from her con contributions to the improvement of medical care. Uh, the notion of nurses as a significant part of the medical care team originates with Nightingale, as did many ideas about the importance of cleanliness and hygiene in hospitals. When she returned to Britain after her service, Nightingale produced an 800-page report for the Royal Commission on the Health of the Army. This became the basics Basis of reforms that transformed sanitation in the treatment of the sick and wounded in the British Army. In 1860, Nightingale founded the Nightingale Training School at St. Thomas Hospital in London. She also wrote a book, Notes on Nursing, which became a core part of the curriculum at the new training school and defined virtually for the first time the importance of hygiene and cleanliness in the treatment of the sick and injured. Hmm. I wonder if she was hot. Wash your ass. Uh, well, I am going to go ahead and guess that she was a very attractive woman. I'm going to say I don't know uh, her level of attractiveness, but I'm going to go on a limb and be uh, be the good guy again and be like her level of attractiveness uh, adds nothing to her value. She was amazing no matter what she looked like. Don't let your image don't let your image hold you back, folks. You're beautiful shut, on the inside too. Shut the fuck up, Johnny. You woke. That's almost like what Brandon Johnson said about Brianna yesterday. Even oh, though she's a female comic, she's still funny. Fuck you, Brandon. You and that's rough. I will not give uh I will not give someone like that the mention. So fuck him. Whatever. He can't see this post anyway. Fuck him. All right. You can so, see these nuts? No, I'm down. I got to calm down. He doesn't <laughs> deserve to see those. So here we go. Uh, I stalled. Here's a picture of Florence. <laughs> she looks like she has seen some shit. Look at the look at the darkness in those eyes. Resting bitch face. She looks like olive oil. She looks like olive oil decided not to pursue Popeye and became a nurse. <laughs> That's funny. Wow. wow. So you know you know who olive oil is. But you know, Sky, quit you, fucking ducking me. But you don't know who Yukon Cornelius from Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer is. Shut the fuck up. 
Yeah, man, my childhood wasn't filled with magic and love like some of ours was and got to watch cool shows. <laughs> wow. You know, but you want to get it together, Dan. One minute, one minute this lady's a Karen, the next minute she's Jones, and now she's like the Tony Stark of nurses. You need to get your life together there, sir. Hey, what Carter, are you talking about? To the podcast. I'm, just, I'm just telling the story. You need to calm down. I think she Carter, I think she's a wonderful woman. I think she's a wonderful woman and that she definitely set a record for women and being nurses around you know the United States. Yeah, there. if you're looking for another co-host, that, that that's not gonna work because that answer was just as shallow as mine when I don't pay attention. <laughs> Shut the hell up. Oh my god. Oh, so should I continue with the podcast then? Are we good? Are we good, mm-hmm. everyone? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's up to you. <laughs> so the Allied Expeditionary Force, which landed in Crimea in September 1854, was not a particularly coherent force. Again, the British and the French Empire hated each other. You know, just absolutely. It'd be like if Biden and Trump had to work together hand-in-hand to correct uh, the COVID-19 problem in the United States. (laughs) That'd be a shit show. Uh, They could have. They could have with a transition of power if uh, someone would act like a civilized fucking human being, you know? Let's call a spade a spade, act like a fucking asshole. So the British and French, again, had a long history, and this was virtually the first time that the two nations had fought on the same side. The British commander-in-chief, a lot of this hate came from him. He was 64 years old. His name was Lord Raglan, and he had lost an arm at the Battle of Waterloo in 1815. Which, since you two don't know history, that was against the French Empire. So he has this hate, and now he has to work with the people that took his arms? Yeah, that's not going to go well. The French, under the command of... Jacques Leroy de saint Anard also held their British allies in low esteem, distrusting the elderly and hesitant Raglan, and there were frequent clashes about strategies and check, uh, tactics. The one thing that they did agree upon was racism. Who would have thought that two white countries would come together for racism? They both felt that the Ottoman allies, allies, the Muslims, uh, were not reliable. Again, racism ensured that both European nations regarded Ottoman troops as inferior and not to be trusted in battle. In most cases, British and French troops used you their know, Ottoman allies. Yeah? It's, it's crazy that they say that the Ottoman Empire was unreliable, Because Muslims are some of the most reliable dudes I know. They're on a very tight schedule. They pray five times a day. Like, they're efficient. Like, that's just craziness. Racism. Right. Mm -hmm. So, uh, in some cases, again, the British and French used their Ottoman allies as labor force. uh, Because they didn't feel like they they would do well in combat. Um, so they, these troops were forced to carry uh, all types of shit, build all types of shit, dig all types of shit. Um, as far as the British, um, 
and the French were concerned this was a war between France and Britain and the Russian adversaries. Ottoman Empire played no part of it. So one of the most located... Go ahead. I know that side. Now, the Ottoman Empire, since... <laughs> yeah. Um, since the Ottoman Empire, in their eyes, played no role in it, I'm sure the Ottomans had to, at some point, get the gist of how they felt. Why didn't they just pull out? Because they couldn't, because this war was essentially about them still being an empire. If they were to step away from British and France, that could turn them on them as well, and they couldn't handle that. So they just had to shut up and do again. Again, I'm not a uh, you know military strategist, but from episode one, wasn't it France that was the protector of the of the Christian peoples of the Ottoman Empire or something like that? Yes, that's what started this war, and, and those they, were Christians, and, and they those could have been were, like, and, uh, so they couldn't have been like, oh, these guys are are fighting on our behalf. They had to stick it out in the mud. Yeah. Uh, so okay. the the number one target of the Allied forces was Sevastopol. Uh, this was an important hub for Russian naval units in the Black Sea and a significant source of supplies for Russian troops. The capture of Sevastopol was the first and most important goal for the Allied forces. Hmm. Interesting. So, so they landed uh, 30 miles away um, and the commander of Russian forces on the Korean Peninsula, I am going to butcher this name, Prince Alexander Sergeyevich Menshevkov, uh, rushed his forces west towards the Allies. And I've listened to that, but the combination of the Ys and the Vs, and it, it fucks me up. No. <laughs> And he occupied the only viable defensive position between expeditionary forces and the city, the Alma Heights, south of uh, Alma River. <clears throat> On September 20th, the combined British-French force reached the Alma River and immediately attacked the Russian positions. Yeah, he's barking. You think there's, there's going to be a podcast in the future, you know, in another country, and they're like, I'm going to... Dan Daniel Brady. I tried to listen to pronunciations, but this guy's name was hellish. No, it's you already know, and we've encountered my speech impediment. Like, there's just sometimes my my voice won't make the sounds. I have been knocking out of the. No, fucking I part, dig it, but its Russian names are just so many V's and blah blah blah. Like here, no, this, I dig it. Um, Dan, what were we looking at? This is, uh, so the Russian forces were situated on the Alma Heights. The Russian forces in this photo are yellow. You see how they're on cliffs and they're high up. And then you see oh, they got in, the the high middle, in the middle of the photo, yes, there is the Alma River. So not only the, the red represents the British and the uh, French are represented by the blue. So not only did they have to push across this river, but they had to go up the heights. Now, before Here, you take this down, okay, um, are the uh, the Ottomans rented here at all? No, they're just combined with uh, the British and the French forces. 
Okay. And here's, you know, without the map lines, this is, again, uh, green is Russian, and then so on and so forth. This just kind of shows the movement of battle. So the Battle of Alma River definitely showcased um, the disorganization of all three uh, armies. So essentially, you had the French. They uh, they attacked first, and they turned the Russian left flank by climbing the cliffs that the Russian commander had considered unscalable. Now, a flank or a flanking attack is basically attacking your enemy uh, in a position which they aren't facing. So, like the sides or the rear uh, hmm. attacking that unit. So, this is very devastating. Obviously, this kind of fire is uh, hellish at, you know. So, they, when the French had this, the British didn't attack. If they had attacked, the war would be over right here because the Russians were already struggling to repel the French and that they had to take another army on from another position, it would have proved too costly and they probably would have retreated. But Lord Raglan insisted that any British attack has to wait until the French move was complete. When the British did attack, the Russian defenders had time to reorganize. So, uh, essentially... Again, um, the Allies made a series of disjointed attacks. The French turned the Russian left flank with an attack up the cliffs. Uh, the British initially waited um, event, uh, then twice unsuccessfully assaulted the Russians' main position on their right. Eventually, the superior British rifle fire that we talked about uh, forced the Russians to retreat. With both flanks turned, the Russian position collapsed and they fled. Now, the war could have been done today because the Russians fled back directly to Sevastopol. But if the British and the French had a cavalry force, they could have run down the retreating Russians and captured Sevastopol and ended the war today. Uh, so the battle cost the French roughly 1,600 casualties, the British 2,000s, the Egyptians who were fighting on part of the, uh, the Ottoman Empire, 503 died, and the Russian lost some 5,000 troops. Hmm. Now, what exactly... Know... Go ahead, Johnny. No, 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 no. What exactly, like, what specific weapons did the Russians use? Um, these were black-powdered uh, muzzleloaders, but they were called mini-rifles. So they were... Uh, they were loaded through the barrel, and what made the British and French rifles more superior to the Russians is the Russians had an old, outdated model that could only fire about two rounds per minute and could only shoot about 200 yards. But the mini rifle, the black powder rifle that the French and the British brought, uh, it could fire up to 800 yards, and it could be uh, the best soldier could uh, load and fire eight, uh, four rounds in a minute. Essentially, these were um, muzzle-loaded. Uh, muzzle-loaders, that's where they get the name from. You put the ball in, you put the powder in, uh, you push it all down, uh, you shake your leg about, and that's what the hokey pokey is all about. So, but these rifles were superior because, again, you could reload more and you could fire further. 
whereas the British or the Russians couldn't fire until they were less than 200 yards away. Now, this was the first mention of the Egyptians. Were they in the entire conflict? The Egyptians were part of the Ottoman Empire. Okay. So that's, you know, I I think we'll talk about this again, but yeah, they, again, the Ottoman Empire is so vast that there's so many different um, ethnicities of people involved in their empire. It's just a good majority of it was Muslim. Mm -hmm. I mean, aren't there Muslim Egyptians? This isn't Egypt in Africa. So that would make sense. So over the next month, British and French troops took up positions completely surrounding Sevastopol with the intention of besieging the city. Uh, The British, so they weren't under siege yet, but basically if you looked out your room, you would just see a bunch of people who wanted to fucking kill you. Uh, The British established a supply port at Balaklava, Balaklava and the French at Kamish. On October 25th, a large Russian force attacked British positions outside the city in an attempt to cut troops off from supplies coming from Balaklava. <laughs> Almost sounds like Baklava. Yes. Uh, so this is this day is just a day of confusion. Nobody really knows what's going on, but it also leads to one of the greatest moments in British military history. Forward the Light Brigade. One of the most notable features about the Crimean War was that it was the first major war, again, which newspapers, correspondents, and photographers were present on the battlefield. First-hand reports of the battle were regularly printed in newspapers and often supported by uh, photographs. So on the morning of October 25th, an example of the power of press reporting occurred when the large detachment, a Russian... Uh, Calvary heading for the British supply base uh, encountered the 93rd Highlanders commanded by Sir Colin Campbell. So the Highlanders are uh, Scottish forces. But they're, they're very, by the way, great job on that name, Dan. Which one? Campbell. Oh, thank you. I tried really hard out of the fucking park, brother. You knocked it out of the fucking park. (laughs) <laughs> I hate you so much. So no, yeah. no, because we always have these conversations in these episodes where it's always these bullshit names, and you're like, ah, can't somebody just be named Frank? And then you get <laughs> Campbell, <laughs> Carl Campbell of the Scottish Highlanders. Hell yeah! Um, during the Napoleonic Wars, the usual response on the part of an infantry unit faced with a cavalry attack was to form a square. This formation limited the offensive firepower of the unit, but prevented cavalry from flanking and getting behind. Campbell was an astute military uh, leader, realized that the mini rifles, which with his men had been issued, were much more powerful uh, than was used during the Napoleonic Wars. Campbell believed that this meant that his men, if assembled in a line formation, would be able to bring sufficiently devastating fire on approach, on approaching cavalry that would be able to stop them in their tracks. <clears throat> um, accordingly, 
As the Russian cavalry approached, Campbell and his men assumed a line formation only two men deep. Observers on the height above were horrified and assumed that the British troops were going to be annihilated by advancing cavalry. So again, we had this uh, the this idea that the only way to face cavalry is to form up in a square and protect yourselves, right? So everybody's watching yes, this sir. like, oh man, those guys are about to get fucked up. But so with muzzle loaders, usually you fire in a volley and combat. So say there's 600 Highlanders here, right? So all 600 would fire their rifles all at once. That is devastating, oh, wow. especially on such a large target like cavalry. Like, I hope you don't like horses because there's going to be a lot of dead horses. One observer was William Howard Russell, who was the first war correspondent ever. He is a reporter for the London Times newspaper. In his report, he described the red-coated Highlanders as a thin red streak topped with steel. During this action, it also became clear that the cavalry, the most powerful type of unit on the battlefield for hundreds of years, was now vulnerable to the new infantry weapons. Like I said, cavalry was used for all manners of things because it was always viewed that the infantry was worthless against them. So British mm -hmm. cavalry at the battle, of, so this this Russian cavalry just got massacred and they got repulsed. Uh, so British cavalry at the Battle of Balaklava uh, was divided into two separate brigades, which a brigade is just a unit. Uh, the regiment, uh, the heavy brigade compromising around 800 mounted troops and the light brigade uh, compromising around 650. The heavy brigade consisted of heavily armed and armored troops on large horses and was designed to be used as a shock force or to counter the enemy cavalry. The men of the light brigade were mounted on a lighter, faster horse, more lightly armored, and armed only with sabers and lances. So the heavy brigade was sent in to take care of infantry units and stuff like that. The light brigade was used as recon or pursuing a retreating enemy. So on the morning of October 5th, the heavy brigade encountered a much larger force of 3,000 Russian cavalry. Despite being at a disadvantage because they were downhill from the Russians, the heavy brigade attacked at once and routed the enemy cavalry. So later that day, it was the turn of the light brigade. During scattered, scattered fighting early that morning, uh, several Russian gun positions on the height of the main battlefield had been taken. Lord Raglan could see from his vantage point above the main valley that the Russian troops were moving to retake the guns uh, which had been captured that morning. Now, I couldn't find a map but I did watch this documentary that was filmed from where this happened. And it is literally a long valley with high hills on both sides. So the heavy brigade okay. was still recovering from its encounter with the Russian cavalry. So Raglan sent a message that Earl of Cardigan, I love his sweaters, the commander of the light brigade saying, Lord Raglan wishes the cavalry to advance rapidly to the front Follow the enemy and try to prevent the enemy carrying away the guns. Cardigan in the valley. Thank you, Johnny. That was perfect. Uh, Cardigan in the valley below cannot see the guns to which the order referred. They were up on a hill. The only artillery visible mm -hmm. to him was way at the far end of the valley. 
So he couldn't see anything down there. The entire Russian army was down there. So although the British cavalry reached the Russian guns at the, um, okay, hold on, blah, 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 back up. Assuming that this was their intended target, the light brigade charged. They were fired upon by more than 50 Russian artillery pieces and 20 battalions of infantry. Although the British cavalry reached the Russian guns at the, hold on one second. Abby, shut the fuck up. So, although Jared, the British cavalry, we're all about kindness to animals. Uh, Peta, don't don't reach out to us because we don't give a fuck. <laughs> I treat her with love and care, but she sits all day and she sleeps until it comes time for me to record. So they were fired upon. You really Morgan. sound like a disgruntled husband. <laughs> they were that fucking upon. bitch. All she does is sit around the goddamn house. Finally, when I want to start recording, she starts hey. yapping at the fucking mouth. Fuck you, old bitch. Stop painting me as a terrible fucking person, and let's get on with this podcast, okay? He's my husband. Damn it! Yeah, you should be. You should be wearing a, a wife beater and drinking a Keystone Light right now. Oh my god! Fuck off. <laughs> they were fired upon. <laughs> More than 50 Russian artillery pieces and 20 battalions of infantry. That is thousands and thousands of muskets all firing down. Although the British cavalry did reach the Russian guns at the end of the valley and destroyed many, less than 195 men were still on their horses when the action was over. They were slaughtered. They were massacred, and they were just outright killed. They ran against 20 battalions and 50 cannons in the valley. That is that is a army's wet dream, to not only have the high ground, but to have just clear line of sight. They were massacred. The yeah, French it's, marshal, it's, it's, it's a wet dream to be able to murder people efficiently like that. Like, just lined up, they're running right towards us, boom, kill them, USA. Or, at this point, not USA. Uh, I don't know what I would chant for not USA, so not USA, not USA. <laughs> uh, the French Marshal Pierce Busquet, who was observing, noted, uh, it is magnificent, but it is not war. British, British newspaper reports extolled the courage of the men who rode towards the Russian guns but it questioned the commanders who sent them on this pointless and costly mission. Lord Raglan blamed uh, the Earl of Lucan, overall commander of the British cavalry. Lucan uh, blamed his brother-in-law, the Earl of Carnegie, who survived the charge. Oh, man. Cardigan blamed both Lucan and Raglan. Eventually, everybody agreed that the real <laughs> blame lay with Captain Nolan, who was the man who delivered the message, and he was also dead. <laughs> That's awful. That's horrible. He was taken off his horse by a piece of shrapnel, and these guys are like, well, Nolan can't argue. It's Nolan's fault. <laughs> I if, mean, I get If it logic. wasn't Nolan's fault, if it wasn't Nolan's fault, then he would have blocked that artillery shell. You know, uh, Dan, this is unrelated, but I was it really took me out of my funk I was in today. So I appreciate that. Oh, and then yeah. just as a treat for the people, the people listening out there, uh, while I've been recording both of these episodes, 
I don't have any pants on. Ow. Oh, wow. <laughs> Bound check go. Wow, wow. So you recording pants went on there. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dan, do you have something to tell me? What? <laughs> do you like Johnny? No, I'm just kidding. Well, yeah, as a friend. Mm-hmm. Bromance it up. I see you. I see you. Well, if you become as reliable as Carter, Johnny. This is what a beautiful. Wow. Yeah. Oh, that's right. Fucking reliable, son. The time I got in last this morning, I got in at like 930 this morning from working all night. I went to the gym twice to try and kill myself yesterday. I haven't slept in like, I don't know, out of the past 48 hours. I probably got three hours of sleep. That was this morning. And I'm still fucking on time, Carter. This is a beautiful, beautiful relationship between two men that love each other and uh, are not afraid to express their true inner feelings. So, fuck off. No, you fuck off. He's mine, damn it. Well, there's only one way to settle this. You two fight. <laughs> I'll shit out of you. <laughs> as much as I love you, I would... <laughs> I would treat you like a Russian in 1853. <laughs> so, oh, wow. Although, in terms of the casualties, what became known as the Charge of the Light Brigade was a relatively <laughs> minor action during the war. It's reporting in the British <laughs> press and the publication of the poem The Charge of the Light Brigade by Alfred Lord Tennyson a few months later had turned this into one of the best-known actions by a British wow. unit in any war. Because, uh, yeah, a lot of them died, but hey, they took people out with them, so pew pew. Uh, the Battle of Baklava <laughs> uh, ended much as it had began, with the Russians confined to the besieged city of Sevastopol and British supply lines between their field positions in the supply port of Balaklava. Uh, both sides began to reinforce the British and French uh, with the intention of ensuring the siege of Sevastopol was secure, the Russians with the intention of mounting an even larger attack on the surrounding armies. Wow. Wow. So, uh, after the failed Russian attempt to disrupt British uh, supply lines during the Battle of Balaklava, the siege of Sevastopol settled down into a period of stalemate. The French and British forces had around 20 artillery pieces set up to fire on Sevastopol. Uh, inside the city, the Russian defenders had more than 300 cannons. Well, so, yeah. and there's uh, also. Dan, uh, yeah. Just for perspective, these cannons, what type of cannons were they? What damage were they capable of? Because, like, I only have two images of cannons in my head. And then where it's like World War II, the guy loading it up, ba-boom. Whoa. And then it's like a pirate ship cannon. Well, so these, what type of these cannons that at? the Russians are using, they stripped from their ships. So these are naval cannons. Oh, so these they're just the like... yeah. And are they like lit by by fuse and all that? Like, I'm gonna guess at this time, yeah. Or there was a, a lanyard system. Okay, that's what. That's wild, man. Yeah, 
Um, you know, pull string, go boom. Uh, for the most part, this produced... Um, so there's an artillery duel between the French and the British guns outside. For the most part, this produced few decisive results. Though in October, a Russian shell fell on a French magazine, which is uh, contains the powder, uh, causing it to explode, destroying a number of guns and killing many of their operators. Uh, not too long later, a British shell hit the magazine in a Russian redoubt, killing an admiral and destroying several guns. The guns, mm. uh, again, the guns in the city were supplemented by Allied naval forces, which also uh, bombarded Sevastopol, though to little effort. Uh, effect. The well-prepared Russian defensive position proved to be extremely resilient. In early October, a flotilla of more than 25 Allied warships bombarded Russian defenses and shore batteries. Little damage was caused, and this was repaired during the night. The Allied warships, meanwhile, lost more than 300 men to intense Russian return fire. Both defenders and attackers dug trench systems and rifle pits from which they could snipe at enemy lines. Now, this also adds to a lot of the disease, because when you're living in the dirt, you're surrounded by the dirt, you're surrounded by the bacteria and disease that's in the dirt. So we saw we see a lot of diseases that we will see in the trench lines during World War I. Okay. So for the Allies, one of the main problems was that they simply did not have sufficient troops to man the long siege line, which ran all the way around the city. Uh, instead, Allied troops were concentrated into small fortified positions, generally uh, redoubts on top of hills. Although the Battle of Balaklava had been a failure, it made the Russians aware of how thinly stretched the Allied forces were. Prince Menshikov, God at that time, the Russian commander with overall responsibility for the defense of Sevastopol had withdrawn to the bulk of his field army from the city before the Allied sea lines were complete, leaving the defense to a garrison of mainly naval troops. In the morning fog on November 5th, Menshikov uh, unleashed more than 40,000 Russian troops from outside the siege lines, supported by more than 100 cannons to attack Allied lines. So, uh-oh, SpaghettiOs, right? Yep. That's that's one way to put it. So the main thrust of the Russian attack uh, was to fall on a British position called Home Hill, uh, where the 2nd Division had prepared defensive positions for around 2,500 men supported by just 12 cannons. On paper, the Russian attack looked unstoppable. However, the sheer numbers of attackers proved to be an issue and only around 15,000 Russian troops were able to attack the hill. The acting commander of the 2nd Division, Major General John Penfather, was uncertain how many attacking Russians he faced due to lingering fog and as soon as he became aware an attack was in progress, he ordered the 2nd Division to advance. So we got fog. Fog so thick uh, I, I read a couple like journal entries and stuff about this battle. Uh, they couldn't see each other. So as soon as this guy hears like, oh, hey, they're attacking up the hill, he decides to attack downhill. And the Russians don't know they're coming. So as soon as they came within ah. range, they both opened fire, and it became apparent, again, just how much better 
the British rifles were compared to the smoothbore muskets used by the Russian troops. The British rifles were accurate at longer range and had a higher rate of fire than the Russian muskets. Despite their superiority in numbers, the Russian attackers were driven back with heavy, heavy casualties. Uh, Lieutenant General okay. Simonov, go ahead. Uh, unrelated question, kind of. Um, they have inferior firepower right now. Yeah. Now, is am I correct in thinking that the guy who created the, what was it, the AK-47 was from Russia? Is that correct? Yes. Kleshnikov. Now, do you... Yes. Do you know what year uh, he came out with that? Uh, in the forties, off the top of my head. And um, could could the failings of this conflict or of this war be a direct result to his motivation? I know it's you know uh, ninety years later, but the real motivation to building the Kalashnikov was for a just a the Kalashnikov is not accurate. But uh, I have watched videos and I have seen AKs basically be put into a pile of mud, left there for days, brought back out, a magazine was put in, and fire off 30 rounds with no issues. Uh, the need for the gun was to, uh, was to have a weapon that would fire in any climate. And the Kalashnikov, you can beat the shit out of an AK-47 and it will still fire. That is why so many rebels use them. That's why so many third world countries use them because it's easy to use. Uh, it can take a fucking beating and they're very cost effective. Oh, I didn't know that at all. Uh, the more uh, you know that, by Dan Brady. Yeah. Uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, it does. So in other areas, the, this attack was repeated. A column of 15,000 Russian troops attempted to take Sandbag Battery, uh, which is a position with a bunch of uh, cannons occupied by just 300 British soldiers. So you have 15,000 against 300. Who's going to win? I bet you the answer is going to surprise you. <clears throat> Seeing the Russians attack, the British attacked, driving back the Russian attack. Throughout the day, the fog continued to hamper attempts by the Russians to coordinate those attacks and they proved unable to take advantage of superior numbers. British reinforcements were moved up to support the defenders on Home Hill, and continued Russian assaults on both positions proved costly. By the evening of November 5th, the Russian troops were forced to withdraw, and the Allies were able to resume their original siege positions. These series of small-scale battles, often undertaken by uh, battalion-sized groups, or smaller due to continuing fog, became known as the Battle of Inkerman. British casualties were around 2,500, while Russian casualties were over 12,000. Oh, wow. So after the disaster of Inkerman, the Russians would never again try to break the siege of Sevastopol by direct attack on the besieging Allied forces. Still, those forces were not strong enough to assault the siege and the siege became one of the longest lasting features of this war. Conditions on both sides became very difficult during the winter of 1854-55. Allied troops were not prepared for a winter war. They were forced to live 
and trenches again in dreadful conditions, especially after a great storm on November 14th destroyed many Allied supply ships and many of the Army's tents. So by the end of this war, uh, from 54 to 55, both armies were on the brink of starvation, cholera, dysentery. Um, virtually all the Allied forces, uh, mules and horses were dead, uh, either starved or, I'm going to assume, eaten. Uh, Britain, the public, was outraged that these conditions were being endured. Um, conditions for the Russian defenders weren't better. Uh, supplies were scarce. And sporadic fighting and continuing artillery bombardment achieved little but inflicted large numbers of casualties for whom there was little prospect of effective uh, medical treatment. And then in early 1855 uh, came an even more bitter blow for the Russians, disheartened by Russian military and naval failures. And exhausted by the strain of directing the war, Tsar Nicholas caught, uh, chill, caught a chill and refused medical treatment. Remember, Tsar Nicholas is the leader of the Russian Empire. So on March 2nd, 1855, the Tsar died in the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg. He is succeeded by his 37-year-old eldest son, Alexander. Alexander II would prove to be a very different Tsar, instigating many internal reforms and pursuing a largely peaceful foreign policy. However, before he could do this, the Crimean War had to be dealt with. Yeah. So this is the bulk of the war, the meat and potatoes. Uh, I'm going to say right here, this is the end of part two. Um, in part three, we're going to talk about the end of the war, and then we are going to uh, basically cover the naval aspect and stuff like that. I thought it was a, good, a lot of interesting information in there. Um, I really enjoyed it. Carter, what do you think? I thought it was pretty cool. I've never heard of that before in my life, so it was nice to be educated on it. Yeah. All right. That's good. I am glad to hear that. Uh, I almost forgot we were at a podcast, and I was going to follow up with something that's inappropriate, but uh, so anyway, as always. That's all right. <laughs> my head's been all over the place uh, during this episode. Like At one point, I considered maybe I should start rocking an eye patch. I don't know. Like, so it's all right to forget things, Dan. Johnny, you almost made me speed, spit, spit, spit out my water fuck on my microphone. <laughs> Yar. <laughs> <laughs> oh, guys, uh, stay tuned for part three. Uh, I've been Johnny Smith this episode. I'm Dan Brady. And I'm Carter Frank. And we were joined by. There we go. Yeah. Uh, catch on part three. Um, don't forget to like, share, subscribe. Uh, peace and love, everybody. Peace and love, and have a good rest of your day. It was a moonless night. I was 18 years old. Life was going nowhere. It was midnight at the railroad track. Didn't look quite
suit and black hair Smile on his face, ribbons on his chest He seemed to walk on air He promised to get me out of this town I'd be handsome, wealthy and brave Travel the world, be powerful, but a slave until my grave. Now it's raining in the desert. I said, Always gotta rain on me. I'm just another of the devil's dogs. Would they ever want with me? Sign my name, diabolical back sealed. Heard the cadence of an evil choir. Sand shifted, I fell into the pit and marched with the other damned until I was one of them. But forever. Devil's dog. 